Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this latest in our series of classical conversations presented by the Seattle Chamber Music Society. This is a series of podcasts produced by the Society that comes to you from the SoundBridge Learning Center at Benaroya Hall in Seattle. We have a live audience assembled with us here in Seattle on Monday, July 2nd, 2012, as we capture this next hour of music and musical conversation and send it out to the computers, smartphones, iPods, and listening devices of music fans everywhere. Over the next hour, we'll listen to excerpts from and discuss some of the pieces featured in the Summer Festival of the Seattle Chamber Music Society. The 31st summer season of the festival commences this week upstairs here in the Nordstrom Recital Hall of this fine facility. So first of all, thanks to all of you who are with us this afternoon, be it live or virtual. However you've chosen to engage with us, we are most grateful for your time and interest. My name is Dave Beck. I'm a host and producer at 94.9 KUOW Public Radio in Seattle, a local cellist and music lover. And it's my great pleasure now to once again introduce you to the artistic director of the Seattle Chamber Music Society, Mr. James Ennis. So please, warm, welcome, warmly welcome him. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, everyone. We talked in our, we'll call it our debut podcast right. uh, in this Classical Conversation series last February about the work that you're doing to bring pieces to the festival that have never been heard at the Seattle Chamber Music Society before. And coming up on Sunday, July 29th, audiences will hear some Prokofiev that's probably not been heard in Seattle, at least not heard hmm. in, in um, this version. So introduce us to this piece. Yeah, this is something that I, I'm quite excited about. Uh, Prokofiev has always been one of my, my favorite composers. My mother was a ballet dancer, and so I kind of grew up listening to Romeo and Juliet and Cinderella and <laughs> La Patassier and all these great uh, Stoneflower, I mean, lots of Prokofiev ballet. So I thought I had a pretty good handle on the Prokofiev ballet scene. But uh, it turns out there was a ballet that he wrote in the 20s, um, that, that funny interwar period where people were doing all kinds of interesting projects that were sometimes uh, sometimes defined by uh, what they didn't have available to them. You know, it was past the days of, uh, you know, Stravinsky's Firebird, the original version of Firebird has, it's about 105 people in the pit, I think, including three harps, you know, I mean, it was pretty opulent. And uh, then you get pieces like Stravinsky's own L'Histoire de Soldat, you know, you're dealing with a these very small forces, because that was what was available, that was what was in the budget. Now, Prokofiev was hired to write a ballet where the musicians that he had at his disposal were an oboe, a clarinet, a violin, a viola, and a double bass. (laughs) Now, that's not uh, your standard quintet formation, Uh, but he was uh, very excited about uh, about composing this, this music and worked on it with uh, the thought from the very beginning that that it would also be a concert piece as well as uh, as ballet music. So he wrote uh, five movements and thought he was more or less done and actually went ahead and published the five movements as his quintet, Opus 39. And then the producer, the, the, uh, the head of the, of the company, said, well, I think we need a couple extra movements. And he was revising the story. And uh, so Prokofiev ended up writing two more movements that he put at the beginning. Uh, and th- th- he was having arguments back and forth with the uh, with the, the head of this company and saying, well, now you keep changing your mind. And I don't know, you know, this music was written in a very specific way for this. And I mean, it's amazing because so little of the correspondence survives that what does survive is really tantalizing and really strange. You know, <laughs> they, you'll get like snippets of letters that have been found saying, saying, you know, well, you know, that scene with the prostitute, I wasn't counting on that. Or, you know, what the, <laughs> you know, the Chinese guys and the firecrackers. It's like, what, do, what is could this possibly be about? You know, and then the ballerina dies. And it, the, the story is very difficult to piece together exactly what it was, except for it was probably very, very strange. Um, in any case, so he wrote these, these two extra movements, and, and the ballet was performed only a handful of times, you know, three times, maybe four times, and the company disbanded. And since he had already published this quintet, and his music, his musical language was developing so quickly at this time that between the time that he wrote the five movements that became the quintet and then composed these other two movements, 
even though not really all that much time had passed, his language had changed. So these these other movements are somewhat different stylistically. And Prokofiev, being a practical person, uh, decided to recycle them and turned yes. them into the first and third movements of his divertimento for yeah. orchestra. But this is all stuff that we know now, but we've only uh, it's only really been known for about... 15 years, I think, because it was never, uh, you know, once, once the piece fell out of the repertory, no one really paid much attention to it. And, and some, some people were of the opinion, well, this quintet probably is the entire ballet, but there were other people that, that said, no, you know, there, I, I saw one of those performances in Germany, and you know, it was different, and there was something else. And it was not until, I think it was the, the mid or late 90s, maybe, that uh, in some archives, they found the uh, sort of short scores, sketches, uh, for these two movements that, that were the first two movements of the ballet. And then some Prokofiev experts said, you know, this looks an awful lot like these movements from the Divertimento. Uh, so Boozy and Hawks, the, the publisher, um, commissioned uh, a man named Samuel Becker, a composer, uh, to sort of re-score from the original sketches uh, I, I've been trying to come up with a word. I've been explaining this to people, and the only word I can come up with was requintetify, right. which um, I don't think is a word, but it is now. Anyway, Mr. Becker requintetified these movements. Um, and uh, the, the first movement, the overture, is pretty much exactly the, uh, the first movement of the divertimento. The third movement, and this is something that, w w once again, one of these strange mysteries about this Prokofiev ballet, the... Uh, the second movement of the quintet, which became in a fairly significantly reworked way, the third movement of the divertimento, in the ballet version is called matalot, which uh, my understanding is that is a fish stew. So why the second movement of this ballet is referred to as a fish stew is only somewhat less mystifying than <laughs> the scene with the uh, prostitutes and the firecrackers and the dead ballerina. So the whole <laughs> thing right. is a little bit out there, but it's fantastic music. And it just, it has been, uh, it's been known, you know, as I say, for a little more than a decade that, uh, that this piece has sort of found new life, but it's been performed very, very rarely. And I'm really excited to, to be able to bring it here, not just a first for our audiences, but uh, quite likely a first for for the area or maybe the entire West Coast. West Coast yeah. uh, we should, if we haven't said it explicitly, 1924. Mm -hmm. So this is, this is six years after Soldier's Tale by Stravinsky. Mm -hmm. So maybe that was resonating in his ears in terms of unusual instrumentation and sort of writing for what's available. Mm -hmm. And like Soldier's Tale, um, this uh, trapeze um, quintet ballet has uh, quite a remarkable violin part. And we have um, a little something from the, the theme and variations section. Maybe you can set this up and we'll, we'll listen to some of this. Yeah, well, the first movement of the, uh, of the quintet, third movement of the ballet, uh, is, is a theme and variations where the, the first time that I heard this music, it was this, this variation with the violin part that I thought, I have to play this piece. <laughs> it's, uh, it's quite something. And here it is. <laughs> well, the piece it um, it's somewhat contemporaneous to the uh, the second symphony, and uh, this movement, the theme and variations. It's funny listening to it in isolation. You know, I've always listened to it having come after the theme, which is a very uh, melodic, very well, for lack of a better term, listenable theme. And of course, on its own, that variation sounds pretty wacky. But uh, <laughs> it's like the second symphony, the second movement of the second symphony. Um, if it's a piece that, that, that you don't know, it's, it's an amazing piece of music, but uh, the, the theme is very, 
very beautiful, very almost uh, graceful in a certain sense. And then these variations become just absolutely insane so i think that that was something that he uh, that he was into at that point yeah. it's so interesting just to think of prokofiev at this time about 33 years old in paris and they said he was one of the three great serges in in, in hmm. paris there was kusevitsky who was championing his music there and, and would do so in the united states uh diaghilev he was he was working with diaghilev and then serge prokofiev he uh had his family there in paris and he could uh, indulge his passion for humor and mo modern gadgetry. There are accounts of Prokofiev clowning around with Charlie Chaplin on the beach while Prokofiev vacationed with his family in France. Um, he was in a position as an acclaimed and in-demand concert pianist, um, an up-and-coming composer, so he had some money. He could afford to buy the relatively new conveyance known as the automobile, and he loved this cutting-edge technology, but was a notoriously bad driver. He and his family <laughs> narrowly escaped tragedy a few times with Prokofiev at the wheel, speeding through the French countryside while on vacation with his wife and children. So there was a, there was a lot going on, this crazy commission that he was working on <laughs> and these wild road trips. How, how do you hear this music very differently from later Prokofiev? I know you, uh, last summer, I guess it was, you played the, the violin sonata, which is speaking of recycling the reworked Flute sonata. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. Last year was a funny season. I actually played both of the violins. Oh sonatas. yeah, yeah, right. Um, yeah, you know Prokofiev's music. Um, certainly, there are very different uh, different periods, but he's, he's a composer that people like to they like to talk about because you you feel like you can almost start to figure out certain patterns patterns in his life and his compositional output, but then. As soon as you think you have a handle on it, he does. He comes out with something very, very surprising and unusual. You know, you have back to back in his in his compositional output. You have a piece like the the first violin concerto, which is so. It's like so much of it is like fairy tale music, and it, and it's it's so lyrical and so lush and beautiful uh, through a lot of it. And then you have the Scythian suite that comes right after that, which is one of his most kind of brutal and aggressive scores. So, he he was a a person with a lot of facets to his personality and, and his compositional personality. And, you know, the, it, it's a, this period from, from which Trapeze comes is, I think, a period of Prokofiev's music that is often um, somewhat overlooked because uh, the, the biographers, they say, well, he was searching for his voice. And, well, I, I think that's a little condescending, you know, considering <laughs> this was someone that had already written some pieces that have become some of the great cornerstones of the literature. But, but certainly um, there is a kind of uh, chromaticism that disappeared to some extent later in his life. And, you know, part of that was going with the style of the time. I mean, some of the music that he was writing in the, uh, in the 20s and 30s was dismissed for not being spiky enough hmm. because uh, you know that was a time where the this sort of new guard of classical music was expected to really be pushing the envelope all of the time you know the first violin concerto was not successful uh, now it's it's considered one of the great violin concertos yeah. period but uh, it's so interesting because here he was in Paris getting all this um, criticism for not being spiky enough, but then he would try to to go back to Russia, where they were they would have nothing to do yeah, with all those yeah. newfangled Parisian innovations that he was messing with. Well, he's it's an interesting it's an interesting case. I mean, I think that I don't know. I I, I sometimes get a little bit you know up on the soapbox about Prokofiev because um, he was certainly a divisive character and not a, I don't think the full story of his personality and of some of his decisions in his life was really understood in the same context that it is now for, for many years. You know, there were, um, I remember in, in 91, so I would have been, let's see, like 15, uh, it was the big Prokofiev centenary. And I remember a big article in the New York Times saying, well, okay, fine, 100 years, we'll play some Prokofiev, but isn't it about time that we put this guy to bed, you know, and stop mm -hmm. playing this, this awful dreck? And of course, I was, you know, 15 and terribly upset about this, and I wanted to write a letter to the editor and blah, blah, blah. But, um, you know, the, Prokofiev, he, um, he liked being in the city and uh, liked meeting with these 
interesting people and, and, and living that kind of life. But ultimately, you know, he was, he was from the country and he was very Russian um, and grew up in a somewhat sheltered way. And uh, he wanted to go home and his choice to go back to the Soviet Union was something that in the Western world, uh, people were not very happy about it, we'll say, you know? And, uh, and I think on sort of political grounds, there were, there were people that, that dismissed him. Um, it's, it's very interesting to me how, uh, you know, now of course we're, we're, this is all kind of becoming more and more ancient history, but you know the rehabilitation of Shostakovich, based on the book testimony that is widely considered by experts to be more or less a complete fabrication, is very interesting to me. Whereas there are still people that uh, can't get past the fact that Prokofiev went back to Russia, despite. The fact, when you look at the evidence, he didn't know what he was getting himself into at all. You know, he came, he was having a difficult time getting truly accepted in the West with his music. And uh, he was promised the world when he went back to Russia. And very sadly for him and his family, that, as is well known, did not work out very well for him. Um, but it's funny because you get you get the people that uh, that take a look at his interwar music and they say well you know this was Prokofiev in the west and he didn't know who he was trying to be and this music you take a look at the music that came before and the music that came after and clearly he was just searching for something and then you find the other people that say all the music after he went back to the Soviet Union well you know this was just him trying to <laughs> trying to please the authorities and you just can't count any of this music for anything that's not the real Prokofiev and you think you know this this was a great 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 genius and his music I think rises above it all and as soon as you think well I like early Prokofiev because I like the classical symphony. Then you think, well, but what about Romeo and Juliet? And it's like, okay, well, maybe I like middle Prokofiev too. And it's like, well, then, you know, what about like the seventh symphony or the, the Sinfonia Concertante? You know, the, 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 well, okay, maybe I like late Prokofiev. So yeah. there's, great, there's great music through his whole life. And, and the way he persisted in the face of all that, that criticism, you know, when we talk about the recycling, that Romeo and Juliet is a great example. Mm -hmm. So many political problems getting Romeo and Juliet to the stage, <laughs> which was finished in 1936, couldn't get to the stage till 1940. So he made a suite out of it and went and pro pro uh, performed that music to great acclaim all over Russia and other parts of the world. And mm -hmm. he just sort of like recycling or requintifying, you know, he, <laughs> he did what he needed to do yeah, to, to kind of move along. A famous scene from Romeo and Juliet, which is the which takes the, the gavotte from the classical symphony, which he had written 20 years er earlier. So Yeah. Well, let's just go out with another uh, little example from uh, the, the trapeze ballet. And this is... This is about the fifth movement of the quintet, but it just gives you a nice idea of how the bass is used in the clarinet and all the interesting uh, instrumentation here. to hearing that. Ah, look forward to playing it. Wonderful music. Well, we'll use Prokofiev's love of the automobile as a convenient segue into a conversation about a 1996 piece by the American composer John Adams on July 18th at this year's Seattle Chamber Music Society Summer Festival. The festival premiere of a piece for two pianos called Hallelujah Junction will take place. John Adams tells us that the piece is very much a product of the automobile age since the title refers to a truck stop on the Nevada, California border. And uh, James, since this is a piece you've gotten to know uh, quite well over the years, um, and, and you know it because uh, 
you actually played it on the piano. And it's, a, it's a, probably a, kind of a well-kept secret that, uh, that you've done some, uh, some piano recording. Uh, how, did, how did that come about and what uh, attracted you to the piece? Well, it's a piece that uh, an old friend of mine, a guy named Andrew Russo, who's a wonderful pianist. Uh, he was my roommate at Juilliard. Um, he uh, he's focused uh, a large uh, part of his career on uh, new music or modern music, and uh, he was preparing some John Adams music for a CD. And he said, "Is when we were, you know, at Juilliard together, we would play two two piano things for him, things together." And uh, he said, uh, "There's this piece, this two piano piece. You're gonna love it. Will you play it with me?" I said, "Sure, okay." And because uh, we were also going to be playing a piece. Uh, called Road Movies for violin and piano, and, and he was looking for something else to put on the CD. And uh, th- one of the things I love about, about Hallelujah Junction is that there's this quote from John Adams saying that it was a great title in search of a piece. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he thought, he saw this Hallelujah Junction, oh yeah, that's, that, that's, a, cool, that's a cool name. Okay, now I have to write a piece for it. And um, I know you've got... Uh, some some musical excerpts to to illustrate this, but um, it, it, think hallelujah is a funny it's a it's a fun word to say hallelujah hallelujah hallelujah, and uh, Adams uses that that rhythm uh, of hallelujah hallelujah, and uh, you know I, I I love Adams music in general, but this piece in particular I think it just in terms of just entertainment value. I mean, it really might be my favorite piece of the last 20 years. I think it's just, uh, it's great fun to listen to. It's great fun to play. Uh, and I'm really, I'm really looking forward to hearing it, you know, and, and getting people's reactions to it. Cause it's, it's, uh, it's just kind of a romp, you know, yeah, and, absolutely. but, it, but, but the middle section is very, very beautiful as well. I mean, it really has a bit of everything. It's, it's about what, 16 minutes long, I think. Yeah. yeah. I just, John Adams is very witty in his his program notes for this. He says, to tell you a little bit more about this place, uh, Hallelujah Junction is a tiny truck stop on Route 49 on the Nevada-California border, not far from where I have a small mountain cabin. One can only speculate on its beginnings in the era of prospectors and gold rush speculators, although a recent visit revealed that cappuccino is now available there. Uh, let's, I, I want to... Hallelujah. Hallelujah. <laughs> I, I do want to break down this a little bit, and um, I, I think what he's doing here, and this is actually the end of the first section, it's roughly three sections, mm-hmm. and I think he's kind of playing with the Leluya mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. version here, but I think from the very beginning of the The very piece, beginning is Leluya, 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 Leluya. Yeah, and, uh, and, and I think he kind of takes it up here, if, if you and I were thinking about mm-hmm. the exact place, but <laughs> you get the idea, so here's, here's a little bit from the first section. part is so difficult to play it doesn't sound like anything at all but it's so difficult to count it's like it, it, and you know we're, it's difficult in this room to get the uh, the stereo perspective that's why you have to come to the concert see uh, <laughs> but you're one two three and 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 triplets and it, it is more train wrecks happen in that spot because and then there every once in a while these chords have to be together and you have to get two fortissimo chords together and two pianos facing each other anyway. I mean, that's difficult in any case, but then the person plays and it's like a conversation on a phone when you have a slightly <laughs> delayed connection and one person, talk, oh, it, you know what I mean? When, when one person talks and then you stop talking, they, they start to talk and that's the kind of the whole idea of this passage, but 
it's uh, <laughs> it's kind of a beast to put it together. Yeah. What one critic calls it the the hallelujah DNA motive, and uh, and it's and, and it is complete by the end of the mm-hmm. uh, piece. So this is this is towards the end, and not only is he still playing with that. Uh, idea that rhythmic idea but then he's overlaying it which 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 sounds like ragtime and barroom piano and um even even piano rolls he cites as something that uh that is i think one of one of adam's greatest gifts as a composer is building and sustaining momentum and the the momentum from it's true that the piece is sort of in three parts but it's also kind of in two movements you could say and the entire second movement, the momentum that builds through it is, and that is sustained is so, so exciting. And uh, it's just fantastic. Hmm. Well, here's, um, here's the completed motive, I guess we'll call it from the end of the piece. It's fun to play too because you just try to break all the strings. It's great. <laughs> I, I love uh, this this description I found. Uh, Hallelujah Junction creates an irresistible sense of exultation and ecstasy. Even during more reflective passages, there's a sense of movement and constant forward motion. Simon Rattle once said that Adam's music makes him feel like he's in a small aircraft flying very fast and close to the ground. <laughs> <laughs> But that sense of of, of of changing landscape, I've heard people talk about, you mm-hmm. know, sort of likening it to being on a winding road. And mm-hmm. there's there's some sense of continuity in motion, but there's always something slightly different happening along the way. Yeah, it's true that, that so much of his music is... Uh, it can be, it can be uh, experienced in terms of... Yeah, reflecting on, say, a passing landscape the way that sometimes, I mean, I'm from Manitoba, you can drive for hours and it looks exactly the same. But (laughs) then you get to other places where everything changes so, so rapidly. And sometimes the changes are exactly in an expected direction. And sometimes the changes are vastly different very Mm. quickly, just like uh, just like in real life. Yeah, yeah. Um, Just to give you a sense of him at his more, you know, reflective Uh, I wanted to play a little bit of the the middle section Mm -hmm. here. Lovely stuff. You really need that in this piece after mm-hmm. what you describe as the intensity of the rhythms in the first movement. Well, yeah, he's such a he's such a master of of uh, textures as well. You know that that it, it's great to listen to it. But I mean, I really I think that uh, that those of you that come to the actual concert want something that you cannot capture on a recording is the way that the different pianos interact, the way that he deals with antiphonal effects, and the way that, that music crosses from one keyboard to the other keyboard. And it's, it's really, it's just a masterful composition. Mm-hmm. You know, one of those pieces that um, is great to listen to, is great to play, and is also great to just kind of look at on the page and think, oh, this is this is really good work. <laughs> you know, sometimes you see the music that's just so virtuosically written that you, you just kind of tip your cap and say, well, that's, that's amazing. 
I just we will we'll move on to the next pieces. But when you were talking about driving across Manitoba, you know, part of part of his and as someone born in Kansas, I, I, I know those drives. Um, part of Adam's story is that he grew up in New England, remarkably eclectic musical childhood his his mother loved Rodgers and Hammerstein he remembers you know, singing in a production of South Pacific when he was a kid he was playing in amateur adult orchestras when he was in grade school playing the clarinet mm-hmm. his father was a very fine clarinetist and uh, had a very strict um, compositional training at Harvard with with some students of Arnold Schoenberg so he he knew that school of serialism and then got in his Volkswagen and drove across the continent up mm. through Canada and ended up in San Francisco at the height of the counterculture mm. and then immersed himself in Cage and, and these electronic music performances, which were just wild and crazy. And he, he says that after these, some of these concerts, he would go home at night to try to re, reorient himself by listening to late Beethoven string quartets. So mm. just the range of things that he experienced and absorbed. And as a person born in 1947, a baby boomer, he was listening to Hendrix and the Grateful Dead and the Beatles and... And somehow, it's a voice uniquely his own, but all of that is in there someplace. Yeah, yeah we were talking about Prokofiev, how you can never quite get a handle on his music because there are so many different sides to his personality. You can certainly say the same thing about, about John Adams. You think of some of his early pieces that are, that are very minimalist, you know, a piece like China Gates for solo piano, which is an amazingly beautiful hypnotic piece of music. And then you know you think of him recently becoming so so involved with with opera and and with vocal uh, vocal composition and and then you have these two piano pieces and you know massive orchestral pieces like Harmony Lair and it, it, he really um, as you say his it's it's a very particular voice and it's a very broad musical personality you know and I, I I've been fortunate to. Have, worked with him and people say, oh, so he must have done some new music. And well, no, no, actually he conducted Mozart concertos mm-hmm. with me. So, you know, he and did a wonderful job. Yeah. You know, he, he's a, a very a, a unbelievably gifted man. And, and, you know, music to him is not one thing. It's very vast and all encompassing. Well, you've just provided a brilliant segue here because what John Adams was listening to when he, <laughs> congratulations, um, what he was listening to when he was young uh, uh, was his father's collection of clarinet recordings. His father was a very fine clarinetist, and he remembers very vividly listening to Benny Goodman play the Mozart clarinet concerto. And um, this piece that we're going to hear during the course of the festival this year is uh, Contrasts by Bela Bartok, and uh, Benny Goodman commissioned this uh, Joseph Zigeti, the great Hungarian violinist, he was kind of the instigator, as as I understand, in kind of making this come together. Yeah, it's it's certainly unexpected. You know, you think of of Bela Bartok, and I don't think that unless you're familiar with this work and its genesis, you don't think, well, Bela Bartok, the first other musician to come to mind is Benny Goodman. <laughs> well, <laughs> huh. um, but. Um, there's a lot of interesting stuff in Bartok's life where, you know, through other people, he was introduced to this one and that one, and pieces grew out of it. And, and yeah, this is, uh, you know, Benny Goodman is is uh, talking about well-rounded people, you know, that he had, is, of course, remembered uh, for his jazz, but, uh, but was a very important uh, person in the history of the classical clarinet too, you know, or what we refer to as our sort of classical music. And uh, this is by no means the only piece that w- that uh, came about as a result of, of his uh, love of, of you know, exploring new yeah, sounds. Yeah, so it's fascinating. I, um, Copeland, Paul Hindemith, right. Morton Gould, mm-hmm. Darius Mio. I think there were others, but there are all major works that mm-hmm. um, Goodman. Uh, <laughs> he he had some money. <laughs> and uh, he knew how to spend and it. And he knew yeah. how to spend it. He spent it, invested it very wisely. Uh, Bartok was um, reportedly a little reluctant to write for a jazz artist, but but he was won over listening to Benny, Benny Goodman's recordings. He spent yeah. some time with them. Though though jazz isn't really the the flavor that's most prevalent, if or at all prevalent in, in no, this piece. No, no, I wouldn't say at all. Yeah. Um, no, I think that uh, 
you know, I think that that was kind of the the point is, yeah, there was probably a little reluctance of, you know, Bartok. I mean, certainly during those years, I mean, there were a lot of composers we think of as classical composers that were they were not afraid to, you know, try to get their their hands into the jazz scene, you know, and there were people like George Gershwin who, how do you even categorize what he was doing? But uh, Bartok, I don't think identified <laughs> as a jazz person. And, uh, but then, as you say, you know, once he realized that Benny Goodman was, was not someone that you could pigeonhole as just a jazz player, he thought, well, great, let's, let's make some music. Yeah. I, I found these little bits of correspondence just speaking to how much Zigetti was into the idea of making this happen. And uh, he wined and dined Benny Goodman, taking him to lunch on the French Riviera in the summer of 1938. Once he had Goodman's agreement to pay for the piece, then Zigetti began to twist Bartok's arm. And here's part of the letter that Zigetti wrote to Bartok to propose the commission. Zigetti says, so please write to Benny Goodman, a registered letter in which you agree to write within a given time, a six to seven minute clarinet violin duo with piano accompaniment. If possible, it would be very good if the piece were to consist of two independent sections. And of course, we will hope it will include a brilliant clarinet and violin cadenza. In any case, I can safely say that Benny brings out from the instrument whatever the clarinet is physically able to perform at all, and quite wonderfully, in regions much higher than the high note in Strauss's Till Eulenspiegel. <laughs> so if you know the, that clarinet lick and that tone paw, <laughs> we're talking stratosphere here. And, and uh, uh, yeah, Bartok didn't pull any punches when it comes to writing for the violin or the You know, clarinet. Bartok, it's so funny. There's, you just keep coming across this same thing, you know, it's like, oh, I'd like, you know, a six, seven minute piece. Well, of course that turns into, you know, an 18 minute piece, you know, well, I just want a little, <laughs> a little, little sonata or something while well, it turns into, you know, one of the most difficult pieces ever written. You know, he, he, he didn't make it easy on his commissioners. That's for sure. I mean, uh, a piece that I, that I play a lot and I was just playing very recently. So it's fresh in my head is, uh, the sonata for solo violin, you know, Menuhin, uh, commissioned that work and, Bartok had heard Menuhin play a uh, recital of solo Bach and became inspired to write write this piece. And every time I, I play that piece and bring it out again, I, I, I think of what Menuhin must have thought when he received this <laughs> score for the first time because it's just staggeringly difficult yeah. from beginning to end and probably much more of an undertaking than anyone could ever have expected, right? But um, Bartok, he wrote the music that he needed to write, and uh, and it was such great music that performers found a way to yeah. to make it happen. Well, they were concerned about fitting this on uh, sides of seventy eights. That's that's why they <laughs> they made you know such specific requests, and and so, but Bartok really warmed to the project, and then he the, ends up adding this whole middle movement. We won't sample that today. We'll, we'll look into the outer movements. But this is a very funny uh, section from a letter that, that Bartok wrote back to Zagetti. Um, and, and Bartok had to break the news that it was a bit of a longer piece. <laughs> and he says, um, salesmen usually deliver less than what is expected of them. But there are exceptions. Uh, though I know people are not likely to be pleased with the contractor's largesse if he delivers a suit for an adult instead of the dress ordered for a two-year-old baby. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I don't think any, uh, any complaints. Uh, no, were, no, were certainly not. Registered. Well, tell us a little bit about this, this opening, this Verbunkos. You, your Hungarian is better than I since oh, you've is been. It? So, oh, oh, well, <laughs> so, I, I imagine you can you've take been... his word for it. I'm, yeah. <laughs> okay. the, uh... Well, Miss, whatever you say, I'll say. <laughs> but uh, this uh, interesting uh, Hungarian folk dance. Right? Yeah, well, we talked about this earlier. That um, you know, nowadays music is music is everywhere, right? I mean, it, it's the background to our lives, and uh, people have more music on their phone than music lovers in generations past could have heard in their entire lives, you know, and this first movement is uh, known as a recruiting dance, which is, it's, it's a, there's a style of music that uh, Bartok explored uh, a decent amount in some of his other compositions as well, where the, the history of this type of music was when uh, recruiters for the army would go 
out to uh, to villages, they had a little band that would play a type of music that would get people feeling such patriotic fervor that they would sign up for the army. And I think, I mean, we still, of course, nowadays, we we use music to manipulate people's emotions all the time. Um, but I think in our society today, when there's always music and you're hearing it all the time, it's, it's strange to reflect upon a, a world where if you went out to, to a village and you actually heard a sort of a band of musicians, this was a big deal. You know, you didn't hear good music. And, to, you know, it's like we, we think about the, the almost the, the ridiculous quaintness of, you know, the drum and fife corps. You think, well, that's a good idea. You're going into a war, so better bring your fife players, right? But, <laughs> but this, this actually, you know, this really moved people. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just think it's, I think it's amazing to think, to think about that, you know, to think about the, the ways historically that music has been used to, to evoke certain feelings in people and how it could be used very specifically to very yeah. specific purposes. Now, of course, Bartok did not write the first movement of the contrasts to try to get people to join the army. It was just based on this, uh, this musical form and idea from years past. Reading a couple of descriptions of this uh, recruiting or enlistment dance, an officer in full dress uniform would strut and prance around to spirited music with the aim of enticing young men to enlist in the army. The Verbunkos dance was used from about 1780 until 1849 when the Austro-Hungarian government eventually decided that conscription, conscription might be a more efficient way to, <laughs> to recruit an army. Um, but it's, um, it's a heck of a lot better than be all you can be. That's all, that, that's all I can say about it. Um, a little bit of the Verbonkosh, and, and this is the Benny Goodman recording with, with Zigetti and uh, Bartok at the piano, so a little history here. That Verbonkos uh, form shows up in a lot of different pieces in Hungarian music and mm -hmm. Kodai and in other Bartok. And, and it, it always has that kind of slow, deliberate, sort of dotted, lots of runs. I mean, that's... That strutting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's, that, that is uh, typical of that style. Mm -hmm. yeah. You also have, uh, we wanted to demonstrate the, the third movement of, of this, um, which... Um, now, do you do you need two violins to play yeah. to play the third? You yeah. you absolutely do yeah. because yeah. because of the tuning, which you mm -hmm. can talk mm -hmm. about a little yeah. later. Yeah, well, it, um, the first the, the last moment, which is uh, really very exciting and, and great fun, he asks in the opening for the violin to be retuned uh, so that instead of the instrument being tuned in fifths, the top two strings are tuned in a tritone with a, an A and an E flat. And the bottom two strings are tuned with a tritone, so the G moving up to a G sharp, A flat. Um, and of course, you can play it uh, by just blocking the strings and getting those intervals. But the actual resonance of having the open strings resonate—I mean, that that top interval with the A and the E flat is actually the same that is used in uh, Saint Saëns' Danse Macabre, mm -hmm. which is a piece that 
is also well known for the, the retuned violin. But uh, it's uh, it gives uh, it gives a very <laughs> the opening. It's the, these open strings. It sounds like um, it sounds like a very bad violinist where things have gone very, very awry. <laughs> and I think that's kind of the idea. And it's also kind of a fun bit of spectacle to have the other violin up there. And uh, it's, a, it's, a, great, it's yeah. a great movement to play. It's good fun. Fun part. Uh, <laughs> well, so that moment yes. where the piano is. I made a little motion with my my hand there. That's uh, written basically. The pianist can play that as many times as the violinist needs to put down the one violin uh. and pick up the next violin. So it's sort of vamp ad libitum there. <laughs> well, while we we're kind of sampling these these historic recordings, uh, I wanted to listen to just a bit of of a recording from about the same time, 1940. And that was the year that Bartok and his wife, the concert pianist Dita Pastori, emigrated to the United States. They were among many uh, European artists in exile who made their way to America at this time. Seven pieces from Microcosmos for two pianos by Bartok is uh, what we're going to hear in a society performance on July 11th. And these are expansions of um, music from Bartok's celebrated volume of teaching pieces for piano called Miko Cosmos. And um, now that we've outed you as a pianist, uh, <laughs> I wonder if those are something that you, you know fairly well from your student years. Or? Well, actually, I, I, not really. It's funny, but Bartok uh, wrote a great amount of music for children. You know, these six volumes of Miko Cosmos, the idea being that one could develop practically an entire piano technique from going through these six books. They start off very, very simple and get progressively more more difficult. Uh, he wrote two great volumes of uh, piano music called Four Children based on uh, folk music. Uh, I don't think that this, this stuff is actually used as, as teaching tools as much as it should mm. be, but um, in any case, the, when Bartok and his wife uh, moved to America, you know, there, there was a certain they were leaving an awful lot behind, and uh, there was a certain necessity of uh, having music that they could play together, you know, that or that that Dita could play, uh, just as a way of making income. You know, uh, the uh, the third piano concerto that was not quite finished before he died, but basically finished. That was written for her as a way for for her to have some income for them and you know they performed the the sonata for two pianos and percussion and these these seven pieces for microcosmos the thing that's great about the 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 microcosmos and and the four children and all this music is that um it certainly was was written partially to to have a, a pedagogical purpose uh but it is it's wonderful music that, you know, there's so much of that in, in our music. You know, the, think of all the great pieces that are technically etudes, but are such great concert music, you know. And, and these, these pieces that, uh, in particular, these pieces that were arranged for two pianos, they quite often um, focus on a very particular technical issue. Mm -hmm. And uh, then in these two piano arrangements, you know, it becomes even more interesting because you, you've got <laughs> these technical elements floating across both keyboards. Yeah, and they have kind of prosaic titles. This one, for instance, is called uh, Chords and Trills. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this is uh, uh, from the 1940s. This is Bartok and his wife.
And these are great. They're, they're short little pieces. Yeah, yeah. They're never more than a couple minutes mm. at max. Well, thank you for all the the great piano music you're you're bringing this summer. <laughs> you, you said that we that's that is as much a function of sort of logistics as as, as anything yeah. Else. You know, it, it's that one of the the real conundrums. You know, putting a, a festival together is you get this chicken and egg situation where well, do you want to program the music and then plug in the people to play it? Or do you want to invite the people that you really want to have and then pick pieces that will fit whatever combinations of people you have? And there has to be a certain amount of both. Because, you know, ideally it would it'd be great to say, well, these are the programs that are going to work for these reasons and we're just going to find people to do it. But, you know, our Connie Cooper, our executive director, would definitely behead me I think if I were to say well Connie I've got this one concert that has 15 players and this next concert has three players and then we've got eight violists on this concert and we have four pianists on the next concert I mean you you have to be somewhat practical about this and uh, there were uh, certain pieces that were were high on my list to present uh, that happened to be some two piano pieces uh, and there were certain pianists that uh, I wanted to have, and so got in touch with a lot of pianists that uh, that, I, that I wanted to bring out for the summer. And it just so happened that a, quite a number of them were only free at the exact same time. So I thought, well, there is one way around this, and this is to <laughs> you know kind of kill two birds with one stone, bring out the, uh, these people that I want to have, and also program some of this wonderful two piano music that might be new to our audiences. People, uh, pieces like the the seven pieces from Microcosmos, the uh, Debussy on Blanc et Noir, uh, the Hallelujah Junction. Um, there's Mio on there. Too. Yeah, Mio Scarmouche. Yeah, yeah there's. Uh, this is the Beethoven Sonata for Four Hands. I don't think that's ever been done. There's a rarity for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll uh, conclude with some brand new music. And I, I have to think it must bring forth a certain amount of Canadian pride in you, James Edis, <laughs> native of Brandon, Manitoba, Canada, to have uh, this particular composer represented at the festival this year. <laughs> you know, uh, Gary Kalesha, uh, our composer this year, is... Uh, he is Canadian, but this was not this was not anything that was done on purpose. Yeah, you know, it's also kind of funny looking at uh, tonight's program. I'm thinking, boy, there's a lot of Canadians on stage tonight. <laughs> I'm not I'm not trying to uh, infiltrate here. No, it's the uh, you know music is at this point very very international, and uh, it was you know Gary is a well known uh, composer not just in Canada but everywhere. But it was actually a tour of the states where I really got to know him. Where uh, he's the I can't remember his exact title. It's like a composer in residence or director of new music or something or other with the Toronto Symphony Orchestra. And uh, there was a Toronto Symphony tour in Florida uh, a little over a year ago, uh, about a year and a half ago, I guess, where I was the soloist. And Gary's uh, orchestral showpiece, Torque, uh, was the uh, opener on the program. So Gary was down for that tour. And... uh, I had known some of his some of his music uh, and from before, and had known that he he's a composer for whom chamber music is very very important. Uh, and then I, you know, getting to hear this piece Torque night after night, which was uh, really terrific. I thought this would be this would be a great person uh, to to bring out to Seattle, and hmm. he he had the time and the interest, and uh, and that's how it worked out. Yeah. It's a piano quartet that uh, right. that's been commissioned, and we're. I'm fortunate to have a, an example of his work, and it, there, it's it's Canadian invasion anyway. You cut it. Uh, it's from the Griffin Piano Trio, right. which a lot of you who have attended the Orcas Island Chamber Music Festival will have heard uh, Griffin performances up there. And they recorded uh, both, or they performed both of his piano trios. Recorded the second one in 2001, and let, let's just listen to um, a couple of sections from his music. This is a selection from the slow movement. He talks a lot about having a great love for Schubert. And uh, this, is, this is not Schubertian, I would say, but it is, is lyrical and atmospheric and, and, and really beautiful and uh, a great use of, of the piano trio, violin, cello, piano, you know, classic chamber music setting. So this, this from the sec- end of the second movement, kind of caught my ear. Thank you. 
just a little bit of his, I just thought that was so lovely and simple. Mm -hmm. And um, what, what strikes you listening to his, his music? Well, I think something I've always appreciated about, about Gary's music is that um, for me, the best music is, is music that is not easily replaceable by something else, <laughs> you know, and you, you listen to that. And um, you know, I think it's, it's a natural tendency when, when you uh, hear something that's new, you think, well, what does this remind me of? Who else does this sound like? And with Gary's music, you know, some, certainly something like that, you think, well, does this sound like Messiaen? Well, not exactly. You know, it, it, his voice is, um, is unique while somehow being familiar too. Mm -hmm. you know, it's, um, he, it's a language that is very much his own, but that is not something that feels completely inaccessible at all. You know, it's not, not the type of music where you think, I don't really know how to even grab onto this because it's, it doesn't, I don't have a frame of reference. There's always a frame of reference. Yeah. You know, we're talking about Gary's love of Schubert and, um, <laughs> Gary's a fun guy. I, I, I highly encourage, uh, all of you to, you know, try to, say hello when he when he's in town for the premiere is he he's wonderfully opinionated i mean it's very funny to get him talking about composers and pieces of music that he thinks are totally overrated and uh, <laughs> it's very very funny but you know he has a great a great love of uh, of all kinds of music and uh and i think because of that you know there there is this there is a base of of tradition yeah, but but the voice is very distinctly his yeah. own. It's so interesting to read some of his own writings on his pieces, and he, he'll use phrases like the first movement is like headbanging music, and then <laughs> and then I'll say that the third movement is like rhythm and blues, and I'll listen to I, I don't I don't hear any you know <laughs> death metal in this, nor do I hear any you know Smokey Robinson in that. But um, and just to echo what you said, just a little paragraph from, a, from an artist statement that he says, I believe that it's an artist's duty to help audiences explore contemporary experience. We must speak about our world, not the world of the past. And we must speak in language that can encompass the incredible range of emotions we experience. We live in a world which seems to oscillate wildly between violence and frustration and compassion and tenderness. I want my music to speak to all these things and to help us accept that they are part of all of us, no matter how much we would prefer to, to avoid confronting these things within ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, it's, it's a powerful statement, but I think when you listen to a bit of his music, you, you get that. Um, the rhythms that he uh, asks of musicians are very compelling and propulsive, and I think you get a sense of that in this um, final movement of his second mm -hmm. piano trio. Well, with that music by this year's uh, commissioned composer, Gary Kalesha, we come to the end of this latest in our series of classical conversations with James Ennis, artistic director of the Seattle Chamber Music Society. We'll visit with two more society artists in the coming weeks. On July 11th, pianist Jeremy Denk will be with us. On July 22nd, we get a visit from pianist Andrew Armstrong. 
Both of these upcoming events in our series are at noon, again, right here in the Soundbridge Learning Center at Benaroya Hall in Seattle. These conversations are recorded for podcast and will be available online shortly for you to download and listen to on your computers and smartphones and various technologies. So search them out at the Seattle Chamber Music Society website. Look under the Education and Outreach section where you'll find them. Share them around with your friends and join us live or virtually at our next classical conversation from the Seattle Chamber Music Society. And while you're online at the site, make plans to attend concerts and recitals offered as part of this year's 31st annual Seattle Chamber Music Society's Summer Festival. Jeremy Jolly produces these programs. Bill Levy is our recording engineer and technical producer. I'm Dave Beck from 94.9 KUOW Public Radio in Seattle. Uh, thanks so much for joining us, and we'll talk to you again soon. And James Ennis, thank you so very much. Thanks, we really Dave. appreciate it. Thanks, Dave.